Thank you, Britt. Great job. Good evening, everyone. And it's nice and warm up here. This, this, you know, it's just cranking up here. So you always want to huddle around here. You know, you stay warm, you know. You're all whips. That's like I just had to say. I mean, when I was in Iowa, we was 50, I did 50 below one time, and that wasn't the windshield factor. 50 will. Yeah, I'm preaching it, brother. And it was cold. How cold was it? It was so cold. <laughs> Friends in his shorts, guys. That's a man right there, okay? That's what my father would do. He'd come in there, be 20 degrees, and my mother would go, Billy, you look like a jerk. And I was like, hell, I'm comfortable, you know? So, and I, I played golf with, uh, Monday with, uh, this past Monday with Buddy. I was telling Larry, Buddy goes out there. He, you know, we're, we're both in shorts, right? And, but he's got a short sleeve shirt. I mean, I got my pullover, my rainy thing. And it was, it was, Clay was with us, and... It was nasty by the time we get to the, the runway part of the Sunset Landing golf course. And I'm going after the fourth hole. I looked at him and he goes, I don't know about you guys, but it's time to quit. <laughs> like, what do you think? So, oh, yeah, good idea, good decision. I made an executive decision. We're out of here. So, anyway, we've got a rain check. So, I heard it's supposed to be like 75 Monday, it looks like. But, yeah, it get, it get cold. Uh, it's it's good, good change, weather change. I was very pleased that you had change of seasons without snow, so that's really good. And I, uh, I, but I, I couldn't believe how cold it was. All right, um, should be, can you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verse 1? Romans chapter 6, verse 1, got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to go through the, uh, I would say in summary fashion, Romans chapter 6, the entire chapter. We'll be looking at a couple of uh, sections in Scripture the next couple of weeks to finish off this study of sanctification. We will look at uh, sanctification as it's taught by Paul in Romans 6, and then we'll be looking at it in, Col in this next week, I believe it's in Colossians chapter 3, the doctrine of sanctification, and then the last hour would be, uh, will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the first eight verses, I believe. So we, uh, we're coming near the end of this study. It's a nine-hour nine study, and I haven't decided exactly uh, what I'm going to do for the next series uh, on Wednesday evenings. I have so many different things I'm going to teach you guys. I have, I just give you an idea that I have already to roll. Uh, Doctrine of Annihilationism, the Antichrist, apostasy. Uh, let's see, the church, big series. That would be fun to do. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, da, 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 da. We have coming up probably past the teacher series, series on prayer. That might be the next one I'm doing. The Rapture, uh, we're gonna, there's also a series on the remnant of Israel, Salvation, that should be coming up soon too, and the unique person of Jesus Christ. And so we got a lot of stuff I have I want to teach here as far as the different doctrines of the Christian faith. So uh, I'll just keep that in prayer. And when uh, people say, oh, how do you determine that? Well, I'm in prayer and something clicks and I go, oh, we'll do this one. Eventually, we're going to do them all, so Lord willing. So, all right, uh, I think that's uh, also remember just you know just put it in your calendars. The last Wednesday of each month is the corporate prayer meeting, so that's going to fall on the 29th of this month at 6 p.m. And also remember, we have the Lord's Supper coming up uh, this Sunday, first Sunday of each month. And uh, so that's about it for my announcements. Let's get right to it. As I said, we have a lot of ground to cover. So uh, let's take a moment of silent prayer. I look around, you all know what to do. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've graciously given to us another gift here on this earth to glorify you. We just thank you, Father, for creation. And uh, though it's uh, tainted by sin and Satan and man's rebellion, we know that one day you're going to lift the curse with the uh, second advent of your son, Jesus Christ. And we just thank you so much, Father, that we're part of the new humanity that's going to reign over this earth for a thousand years and on into eternity. And uh, we just thank you for making us members of the body of Christ, the church, and putting us in the greatest dispensation in history and be placing us in union with your son and all the great implications of that. And I just thank you, Father, for giving us the victory over sin and Satan and his cosmic system. Through that, uh, your, our faith in your son at justification and our union identification with your son through the baptism of the spirit. I thank you, Father, for uh, this uh, ministry. I thank you for the members of the body of Christ that are in this geographical location, a part of this local assembly. I thank you for each and every one of them and those that have ventured out here tonight in the cold. I just uh, thank you, Father, for this building, and I thank you for the leadership and the, the, uh, the board, the dec uh, deacons in this uh, ministry. I thank you for them, Father. I pray you protect them uh, from the evil one and give them wisdom along with myself in leading this congregation. Thank you for this study and the doctrine of just, uh, sanctification. We pray that it would be a blessing to your people here as we continue on with this study. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would use me mightily here this evening to communicate the, and to com communicate and do the exposition and explanation of this uh, subject of sanctification in the sixth chapter of the Book of Romans. And I just pray, Father, help me to do so with reverence and respect and power and sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction so that your people can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment that they need to uh, go about their daily lives and growing up to spiritual maturity to become like your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd help your people in the audience by the Spirit also to learn, understand, concentrate, and to make the pr proper application to carefully consider the passages and uh, principles that we're noting here this evening and, do, and for the purpose of making personal application. Not only do I pray that you would pr speak to uh, each of us individually, where we're at and our walk with you, Father, but also that all of us as a corporate unit that would be able to be spoken to by the Spirit who indwells each and every one of us here in this chapel. So I pray, Father, for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. All right, uh, the doctrine of sanctification. We're continuing uh, this evening by noting the doctrine of sanctification as it's taught by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. And uh, quickly, by way of review, we saw in our first hour in the introduction to the subject, sanctification is a technical theological term for the believer, church-age believer, who's been set apart through the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of justification in order to serve God exclusively. And it's also accomplished, as we pointed out, and we went through each of these uh, individually in three stages, positional, experiential, and perfective. We pointed out positional is related to you at the moment of conversion. It's what God did for you at the moment of conversion, justification. It's how God views you now. And also, it, meaning crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with his son. And also, it sets up the guarantee of a being perfected in a resurrection body at the rapture of the resurrection of the church. And also, it sets up the potential to experience this sanctification in time. Experiencing sanctification in time is a synonym for uh, another way of talking about experiencing fellowship with God. So when we talk about fellowship with God, we can experience fellowship with God. And when we do that uh, through obedience to his word, we're actually experiencing the fact that we're set apart to serve God 
exclusively. It's only a potential, this experiential sanctification, because it depends on our volitional decisions. Will we confess our sins when necessary, and will we maintain that fellowship once it's been restored through the confession of sin? Will we maintain it by obeying God's word? In particular, appropriating by faith our union identification with Christ and considering ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to God, which we'll see in this passage in Romans chapter 6 and touched on it in previous classes. So then we also pointed out that all three stages of sanctification refer to the process of conforming the believer into the image of Jesus Christ, which is the Father's plan from eternity past. So this is where, why we're here on this earth. And so this, will t this tells us, this doctrine tells us that we're here to do the Father's will, just like it was the Son's uh, uh, will, uh, uh, purpose in life, to do the Father's will in redeeming us sinners from the slave market of sin, in which we were all born physically alive and spiritually dead, and uh, reconciling us sinners to a holy God, and propitiating the Father's holiness. So now we have a plan too, and it's the following the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the pioneer of our faith, as, the, as Paul says in Hebrews. So sanctification all three stages of sanctification, again, refer to the process of conforming the believer into the image of Jesus Christ, which is the Father's plan from eternity past. That's just, when you think about it, that's incredible. That us sinners who are spiritually dead and in our sins and transgressions, enemies of God, enslaved to the devil and his cosmic system, deceived, God is going to turn us into the image of his son, conform us in the image of his son, and he did it all at the moment of our justification when we simply made the decision to trust in Jesus as our Savior, and that changed our whole lives. And so now we got a plan. We have a reason for getting up in the morning. Every single one of us as Christians should never have uh, be getting to get down for too long because you've got a plan. You have a reason for getting up in the morning. You should not have a problem getting up in the morning. Of course, this morning was kind of tough getting up. This morning was so cold. I just want to stay under the cover and think, I really don't want to get out of bed and freeze my butt and take a shower. But I did it in any ways. And so, but it's one of those days where Christians, we should get up in the morning. We have like, I got something to do here. I have a, I have a plan plan that God has given me, and of course the game plan is found in the Bible. This is your game plan. This is your, you know, when they, when the uh, playbook. That's when uh, when you go into a, uh, with a football team, they give you your. You know, I was in uh, high school. They give you your game, your, your the plays, and you have your. Uh, this is what we're going to do. So you have to know that playbook. And so that's the playbook. And those who know the playbook and put it into practice, those are the ones who are going to execute the Father's plan and experience their sanctification. And so therefore, sanctification deals with conforming the believer to the holiness of God and rep reproducing it in the believer. So as we pointed out in the very first hour, the word saints, hagios, uh, you see someone's, uh, some translations like the NIV, they translate it holy ones. And most translations translate it saints. Holy ones is good because it's in the plural and it's speak and it's used in a substantive uh, uh, the adjective hagios is used in a substantive way uh, meaning that it's, it's acting like a noun and so we are truly holy ones so that's why you see in Romans 6 as we read the NIV where most translations will say sanctification the modern ones uh, and that's how I translate it the NIV will say holiness, you know, leading to holiness, stuff like that. That's talking about sanctification. Sanctification and holiness are hand in hand. They're the same thing. God wants us to, we're holy as God. Yes, we are, because we received the imputation of Adam's sin, at, uh, excuse me, the imputation of Christ's uh, righteousness at our justification. So now we are as holy as he is. And we're in union with Christ. And God looks at us as he looks at his son. Is Jesus holy? In fact, he's called in scripture the holy one. So yes, we are. 
but we don't experience it all the time because we sin. But we're going to be perfected and we'll be truly holy ones when we're in a resurrection body. And, in the, and right now, in between our justification, our conversion, and the rapture, we must, or our death, whichever comes first, we must experience the holiness of God. And that's what we're here to do. So therefore, sanctification, again, deals with conforming the believer to the holiness of God and reproducing it in the believer. The moment the believer was declared justified through faith in Jesus Christ, the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit caused the believer to become identical and united with the Lord Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, spirit, uh, spiritual and physical death, his burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. In other words, the Father looks at you and I as, have, as, as having been crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with his Son. Why? Because those events in his life provided us our so great salvation and sanctification, and it also, uh, it, because we have to be identified with him in those events, because we're under his headship now. We're under the federal headship of Christ. And we, we saw that we, when we came into this world, Physically, we were born physically alive, spiritually dead because we're receiving the imputation of Adam's sin because we're under the headship of Adam, the first Adam. Now we're under the headship of the last Adam, and that took place at the moment of our justification when the Holy Spirit took us by the scruff of the neck and he put us in Christ. So I think of two circles. You have one circle is in Adam, and that's where we used to be prior to justification. Take another circle, and that's in Christ. Well, that's where we are now, and you have eternal security because of that. Not, we have eternal security because we were not saved or justified based upon our own merits, but on the merits of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. So God truly does look at us as he looks at his son. He's either looking at you in the human race as in, uh, according to the first Adam, or he's looking at you and I, of course, uh, as according to the second Adam, who is the head of the new creation. And this is all tied to the new creation, the new humanity that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. That's a book we're going to be doing in the future. So again, the moment the believer was declared justified through faith in Jesus Christ, the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit caused the believer to become identical and united with the Lord Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, his spiritual and physical death, his burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. So in Romans 6.3, we left off with this last week, tied to the baptism of the Spirit. We saw in Romans 6.3, a passage we're going to look at again tonight, 1 Corinthians 12.13, Galatians 3.27, Paul's using the verb baptizo, and it's used in a figurative or metaphorical sense to denote the Holy Spirit causing the believer to be identified, quote-unquote, with Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with water. Water baptism was... Uh, there, are some, there are some people that believe that water baptism, they call it baptismal uh, regeneration, and the Campbellites are into that. You know, there's some people uh, think that, uh, like, you know, with water... I was baptized when I was an infant. That, that, you know, that in case, you know, something happens, so that I'll be going to heaven. I said to my mother, that's ridiculous. I said, you're going to tell me that God, if the, ba the baby's not baptized before the age of accountability, God's going to throw it in the lake of fire? No, that's not going to happen. And so uh, we see that uh, we, that's not going to save us. Water baptism is an infant. What's gonna, what water baptism was used in the early church was really for discipleship. It was a, a sign, a public affirmation that I'm a follower of Jesus. It's your faith in Jesus Christ that justification is what saved you. And it's the ceremony of uh, dipping the person in, underneath the water that speaks of you've died, with, you've been, died and buried with Christ and pulled out of the water, you're raised and seated with Christ. 
So it's a, it's a visual illustration. You know, the kids in the prep school, we used to use visual aids all the time, and I was always doing that. And so that's what it is. And it's basically telling the world, hey, I'm following Jesus. I'm set apart to serve him exclusively, and I, I've been because I've been identified with him in his death and resurrection. That's the water baptism is tied to our sanctification, okay? And in particular, experiencing sanctification. So in Romans 6, 3, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and Galatians 3, 27, Paul's using the verb baptizo in a figurative or metaphorical sense to denote the Holy Spirit, causing the believer to be identified with Jesus Christ and, and those events in his life that we had just pointed out. Now, we're going to be in the sixth chapter of Romans tonight. And Romans is, I, I told you, I've taught in the past on Romans when I was in my first ch church uh, plant in, uh, in um, Norway, Iowa. And uh, Romans, I did over 500 hours in Romans. And I have the, uh, the exegesis and exposition is on our website. And uh, I look back now, I, I can't believe I did over 500 hours. But I'll tell you what, it was so much fun. I was having a blast doing it. I don't know if anybody else was having a blast. But it was, it, but it was a very difficult book. And we've got to remember when we talked about Paul in Romans here, Peter talks about Paul being difficult to understand in some parts. And so I always have to remind people that Paul's pretty deep. And so um, if you don't get something the first time around, well, keep working at it, and eventually it'll come to you. Keep working at it. I've been working in Paul's uh, letters uh, for 30 years now in the original languages, and I tell you what, he is, I'm, I, more and more I study him, the more and more I'm like an R of this guy. And just, just as a literary, as a writer, okay, it was incredible what he was doing. Nobody in that day, for instance, would write the Book of, book of Romans. To, to write that book, it cost you hundreds of dollars in, in, in today in our money to do that. And it also was unusual for a guy to write you know, a, a, something that large, like the Book of Romans, like Paul did. They didn't usually write letters that long. Okay, So Paul was doing something that was pretty uh, groundbreaking at, at the time. And he was taking advantage of the technology that he had. So we have here, uh, Romans 6 is a part of the fourth major section of this great book, okay? So again, the background of Romans, Paul was writing Romans, <clears throat> and uh, he was basically communicating to the Roman Christian community a, a group he had never met before. And he eventually got there, but uh, by way of uh, being in prison for uh, 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 being accused of bringing Trophimus, a Gentile, into the Jewish temple, a wing of the temple as recorded in the book of Acts. So the book of Romans is basically introducing himself to the, the Christian community in, in, uh, in, uh, in Rome. And so these individuals, uh, he's telling them his, his gospel, and it's his magnum opus, we can call it. It's the greatest, probably the greatest thing. I think the next book next to it is probably Ephesians. I mean, it's, I suppose it's kind of funny to kind of compare Paul's books, but Romans is really an incredible book, and it's got the whole plan of God there. All right, so we see that the Romans 6 all the way to Romans 8, 39, the, Romans 6, 7, 8, okay, those chapters, they constitute the fourth major section in the book of Romans. Now, in this section, we could say that it teaches the believer, you and I, how to experience the righteousness of God after being declared justified by God, which he identifies as sanctification. So, you know, as I said before, experiencing fellowship with God can be described as being 
experiencing uh, sanctification, experiencing salvation, experiencing the righteousness of God. When you're in fellowship with God, those that's what you're doing. You're experiencing the righteousness of God. You're experiencing the love of God. You're experiencing sanctification and salvation. So this and the peace of God when you're in fellowship with God. So. This fourth major section, and I have a little outline that this is from my uh, article that's uh, in my Logos program. I put it in my Logos program. It's my uh, outline for this uh, section, fourth major section. So we have sanctification, and it's, it speaks of us experiencing the righteousness of God. And when we're doing that, we're experiencing being set apart to serve God exclusively. Now, uh, this uh, uh, fourth major section can be broken out after you have uh, Roman numeral number one, sanctification, experiencing the, the righteousness of God, Romans 6, 1 to Romans 8, 39. It can bro be broken out into ABC uh, section, three sections. First, ba the basis for sanctification is spoken about by Paul in the first four verses of chapter 6. Then and that can be broken out into verses 5 through 14 and 15 through 23, the first, uh, the former, speaking of being dead to sin and alive with Christ, and the second being being slaves to righteousness. And then uh, we, uh, we talk about being dead to the law in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And then we have the conflict between the old sin nature and the new nature in Romans 7, 14 through 25, where Paul gives us an autobiographical section of himself, of his struggles, with uh, not uh, depending upon the Holy Spirit to experience his sanctification, and he got frustrated. And he, and he had a hard time. And then we have the Spirit is brought onto the scene in Romans 8, 1 through 17, with the 14 affirmations of the Holy Spirit. And then we have the goal of sanctification is put, uh, put for us in Romans 8, 8, 18 through 25. And then we have the intercessory ministry of the Spirit and sanctification in verses 26 and 27. And then the guarantee of sanctification in Romans 8, 28 through 39. So that's just the, the outline of the whole for a section. But we're going to be looking at uh, sanctification uh, in, uh, in ch chapter 6 exclusively here this evening. So let's, let's read the whole chapter. We're going to read Romans chapter 6 in our Bibles, and then we're going to go break these verses down. It's a summary. I'm going to look at the chapter in a summary fashion. I'm not going to get into details because we're not going to have the time in one hour to do that. So we'll read Romans 6, and then we're going to go, by, go through each verse individually. And I'll, as I do that, I'll be throwing in my translation as well to help us understand these verses. So it says in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it no, any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. And when he talks about sin there, he's talking about the sin nature. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil's desires. 
Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you were slaves to sin, which leads to death, and he's talking in the context of believers, and that would mean loss of fellowship with God is a type of death here. It's called temporal spiritual death, the colonel used to call it. Or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, the gospel. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms, he says, because you're weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness, and a lot of translations say leading to sanctification. The modern ones you know, pretty much do that, but the NIV de deviates from that, which is no problem, as I said before, because sanctification and holiness are one and the same here. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those, uh, those things, he says, result in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, sanctification, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as I pointed out to you on my, uh, in the, uh, the outline of the chapter, we're going to look at the basis for sanctification in verses 1 through 4. Then it's followed, that's broken out into uh, verses 5 through 14, which speaks of being dead to sin nature and alive to God. Then we have verses 15 through 23, round out the chapter, which talks about being a slave to righteousness. So that's how we can outline uh, the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. So as I said before, I'm going to go and as we go through these verses and I expound upon them, I'm going to throw in my translation of these verses to help us understand. I try to bring out more of what the original languages say in my translation than the, uh, the, uh, the NIV would be able to do so for us. So because mine's more interpretive than theirs. So we have in Romans chapter six, verses one and two, Paul's actually emphatically rejecting the idea that a Christian living under the dominion of the sin nature accentuates the grace of God. If you look at uh, the uh, NIV again, it says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he emphatically negates this. May, by no means, may godoito in the Greek. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So what he's doing is, and you see this throughout the, the, the first uh, eight chapters of Romans, Paul brings up the arguments of his opponents. And one of the things that Paul was accused of, because he said the Christian, the, the Gentiles do not have to obey the Mosaic law, is that those Judaizers and other Jewish uh, non-believers were saying, well, you're saying there's no law to live by. So you're basically what we call antinomianists. A person who's an antinomian is someone who doesn't believe there's any law in the Christian way of life. We are under the law of liberty. We're under the law of Christ. Okay? So we see here that Paul's answering his critics here. 
And he's saying, no, that's not the case. I'm not trying to accentuate the grace, uh, the, the grace of God uh, living under the sin nature. So we've been freed from the dominion of the sin nature at the moment of our justification. Okay. Now, here's where faith comes in. Do you believe that? Because the Bible says, the Holy Spirit says in this chapter, that you've died to the sin nature, okay, and you're raised. Okay? You're free from it. Okay? Because of your identification with Christ and your justification with him. So that's faith now. So, what ha- when I, so when you're faced with temptation to sin, you have to remind yourself constantly that, yes, you gotta, you gotta, we have to condition our minds to be always thinking about this when we come to the temptation to sin. And, and so whether it's whatever it is, mental, verbal, or overactive sin, because we've got to think about this is how we experience the victory over sin. And the temptation to sin is through this having faith in God's word that he says we've died with Christ if we believe that how could a dead man sin then if you believe you're died with Christ how in the world could you sin you sin because you really haven't accepted that by faith at that moment that's why you're not experiencing victory over sin okay so this takes practice not everybody's going to do this perfectly no one does this perfectly because we we're sinners by nature and practice still we have a sin nature and we have a volition and there's a devil's world and we're going to fail that's what first john 1 9 rebound is for to restore us back to fellowship so if you fail try try again i mean that's the grace of god right you know truly you know uh, uh, grace is what you have to understand you're under and uh, we all sin in many ways. And when we sin, you know, we, you, a lot of Christians uh, fall apart. But you do what First John 1, 9 says, and God forgives you. And they, the Lord had to emphasize that with Peter. You know, he goes, uh, you know, Lord, uh, Peter goes, how many times must I, uh, I uh, forgive my brother? And uh, seven times. And he thought he was pretty good. And he said, no, 70 times seven. 490 times. You're not going to have to do that in one day, right? Or that, maybe in a lifetime with a friend, okay? Maybe some friends you have to do that. But if we see that, uh, like with me. So anyways, but he's like, if he tells Peter that, how does God treat us, okay? If that's the way we're supposed to treat each other. What do you think God does with us? The same thing. As, as many times as he needs to restore us to fellowship through the confession of sin, he's going to do it. He knows our condition. He knows we got these bodies contaminated by sin. He knows we have a, a free volition that can be deceived and tempted by sin from the cosmic system of Satan and the desires of the sin nature. So, and my translation of this, uh, these two verses goes as follows. It says, Therefore, what is the conclusion that we're forced to? Should we persist in living under the dominion of the sin nature in order that grace might increase? Absolutely not. We, who are indeed of such character and of a particular class of individuals, have died with reference to the sin nature, because we died with Christ, our union identification with him. How shall we still live under its dominion? Again, that takes faith to experience the victory that's already ours. Do you believe this? Do you believe you died to the sin nature? Yes. Well, then you're going to experience victory over the sin nature. So in Romans 6, 3, we see that Paul speaks of the justified sinner being identified with Christ in his death so as to resolve the believer's problem of being spiritually dead. Look at Romans 6, 3 on the board. Romans 6, 3. Paul says, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ, and again, this is figurative, not, not into water, but identified with, we could say, Christ. Jesus, so he, or don't you know, there's something they should know, 
that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Don't you know this? Okay? Because this is true. Now, what's interesting is one of the things we need to see is, as, about this chapter is it's teaching us, again, how to deal with the temptation to sin and the sin nature that tempts us in the devil's world, really. And the fact that this book is, and this chapter is not being taught in churches is the reason why the church is impotent in America and around the, many places in the world. They're not being taught this. He says, don't you know? This is something that they should know. Pastors should be teaching this. Every one of them should be teaching this. Not just me, everybody. We need to know these things. This is something we should know. Ignorance will kill you. Okay? In the spiritual life, you're ignorant of your Bible, it's going to kill you. It's going to catch up to you, and it's going to kill you. You're going you're to not get the most out of your walk with God as you could. You've got to know the game plan. You've got to put make a, a commitment to it. And listen to me. If you're single, and there are a few people single out, you've got a huge advantage over the married people. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, I'd rather you be like me. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be like me. Paul, you know, Paul's not saying, I'm not gonna, like, all going to be like me. It's nothing wrong to get married. But you've got an advantage. So as while you're single, do whatever you can to go after God's plan. You've got a great opportunity. So like for myself, as a, I don't know any pastor. I'm, I, I'm sure there's some pastors that are not married, or that are not married like I am. But I don't know any men, men who, are, who are pastors that are not married. So i got a huge advantage over them. I got enormous advantage over them because I'm able to, I don't have the distractions of marriage and kids and, you know, the grandchildren. Like my buddy, uh, Jim, he's dealing with grandchildren. I go, no, can you do with grandchildren? That's great, they're cute, lovable. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, he says, yeah, but meanwhile, you're studying and working and doing all kinds of stuff. It's like, yeah. So I can take advantage of it. So one of the things, one of the things that there's hurt in the church is this stuff is not being taught. We not we, we, people are saying I can't they they, they 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 can't get any experience any victory over sin. They can't get any victory over sin because they're not being taught these things how to deal with it. I see these books they come out these modern people uh, in the in the Christian church and they never mention this stuff. Well, you know Paul, Paul if he was talking to me in a class of teenagers about how to deal with temptation to sin or adults or whatever or in the local assembly he'd be teaching this. Because this is what his teaching was. So the victory is already ours. We have it. Okay? So all we need to do is appropriate by faith this power, this victory already, that is already ours. How do we do that? How do you, when you appropriate this victory, it means you're appropriating the power to overcome sin. Can Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the reign of the Father overcome our sin? Yes, he's already defeated it. And the devil with those things in his life. Now, those events in his life are ours. The victory is ours. That's what it's all about. So we, we need to practice doing this and thinking right and appropriating by faith this union identification with Christ and considering ourselves dead to the sin nature and alive to God, meditating upon that, praying upon that, so they make personal application. And this is what the church, this is what we're, people talk about revival in America. This has got to happen if there's going to be revival. People talk about revival. It's more than just damping around and singing around, you know, singing songs, kumbaya, whatever they're doing. You know, it's more than just music and stand, you know, 50,000 people in an auditorium. I'm not impressed. You need to see character change. 
See, Americans, Americans have no, they, they're so lacking in depth in their Christianity. It's the character that, then we have, then we have a, a, a revival. When the character is changing in the people, meaning they're being conformed to the image of Christ experientially, that's what's going to change things. That's the greatest thing that can ever happen to our country. Can you imagine just, if, if you can imagine, even if a million Christians started, you know, in addition to what we already have, it would change the country. It would, you would be amazed. You say, oh, nah, you think politics is going to, no, no, this is going to do it. We're the ones that can change the course of history for America. We're the ones. Are we not the salt of the earth? Well, it starts here. Right down where the rubber meets the road, where we live. We all have to battle sin. Here's the victory. Paul's telling us, the, he's giving us the playbook to experience that victory over sin. And Satan and his cosmic system. So we see that Romans 6, 3 says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? My translation of that verse, or... Are some of you in a state of ignorance concerning the fact that all of us who have been identified with Christ, who is Jesus, have been identified with his death? Okay? Then, in Romans 6, 4, he speaks, Paul speaks of the justified sinner. That's what you and I are, you know, justified sinners. He speaks of them being identified with Christ in his physical death so as to solve the problem of possessing a sin nature. Look at Romans 6, 4 in the NIV on the board. <clears throat> you can read your own Bibles. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life, live a new life. Where the, you heard me say this before. The Christian, the Christian is the only one that has an alternative lifestyle. It's not the gay and lesbians, or the transgender, whatever you want, they're going to call themselves. It's we are. They're all slaves to sin, just like the heterosexuals and the, everybody, everybody's enslaved to sin in the world. That's the problem. And then we're enslaved to the devil. We're not. We have an alternative lifestyle to living in sin and being enslaved to sin and Satan. We have, a, we're an alternative lifestyle. We're here to sleep. We're slaves to God. And we obey God because we love God. And why do we love God? Because he, he sent his son to the cross for us when we were his enemies. And he raised us up and seated us with his son through the baptism of the spirit at our justification. When we were, because of our, when we were in our sins and transgressions, spiritually dead. Romans 6, 5, 6 through 8, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, respectively. That's why we obey him, because of what he did for us. Here's another thing. When you go to temptation to sin, think about what God did for you in his enemy. He didn't say, he didn't, he didn't do all this for us so we could go continue living sin. So the reason why Christians are not getting it, they think you've got to learn, you've got to first know how much God loves you and what he's done for you so that you can gain appreciation, which gives you the motivation to obey him. You can't operate in faith and obey him if you don't know anything about what he's done for you and what he's doing for you now, what he's going to do for you in the future. That all should serve as motivation to obey him. Okay? All of it. So it says in Romans 6, 4, my translation on the board, therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism with respect to his physical death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead ones through the glory of the Father, in the same way, we ourselves will also walk in the realm of an extraordinary life. The word in the Greek there, it speaks of the fact that we have an extraordinary life. 
if you ever look back, I mean, I can't. I was look I, since I got here to Alabama. It's like this, the smoke has kind of cleared for me, okay? Because the last thirty years has been unbelievable. I, I look back and I go, "What an extraordinary life!" I I never could plan this out for me. It's an extraordinary life, and many of you could say the same thing. Look at my life. I've look at the things that have that I've been through and experienced that God led me. It's a truly it's an adventure, great adventure. It's a great adventure. With uh, John Bunyan did a book on that. You know, he wrote it. The, you know, there's a, I think even uh, the, the, Lord, the, the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, we see that J.R. Tolkien, I think, I think that, that whole thing with the, is a bit of a spiritual life thing, you know? And uh, that's exactly what it was, I mean, him and C.S. Lewis and everything. But I think this is an tr- incredible journey, you know? I feel like I'm a hobbit on a great journey, you know? <laughs> Don't you ever think of I feel like I'm a hobbit on a great job. I look like a hobbit, too. But I, go, I walk by some of these houses in Alabama. I take a walk at in the afternoon, I, I take a two-mile walk downtown, circle around, sip, and then come back up here. And, uh, but I see some of these houses. Look, that looks like a little Hollywood houses. You know, some of them are like really cozy. Like, I wonder if Frodo was in there or something like that. But anyways, so you and I have an extraordinary life. This ain't boring. If you're bored with your life, hit yourself in the head and wake up, okay? Look at this book. Get yourself in that book, and many, you know, I look around, preach to the choir, right? Serve, give, do whatever you're doing in the spiritual life. Live, do your job as under the Lord at work. Do your jo- come here and love the, the bride, uh, the, the body of Christ. Love one another as Christ has loved you. And so when we do these things, okay, we're serving each other. God's going to lead you into an extraordinary life you could never, ever, Hollywood couldn't write a greater script. You're going to have the most exciting life ever. I remember I used to listen to the Colonel, and I, uh, with the, with te- he would say that. I was like, he's right. It was true. He had an extraordinary life, and I feel like I'm in an extraordinary life. And many of you could probably say the same thing. Looking back what you've gone through and what God's taken you through up to the present moment, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. Heck, after we're dead, or the rapture, whichever comes first, oh, we, can't, we have no idea how incredible that's going to be. Eye is not seen. Air is not heard. Nor is it into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So we got a lot. We got an extraordinary life that God has given to us. Now, in Romans 6, 5, Apostle Paul teaches that the justified sin of the Christian is identified with Christ in his resurrection for the purpose of the believer that he might receive him or her receive a resurrection body like the last Adam, Jesus Christ, so as to replace this sinful body. It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. My translation on the board, it says, therefore, if it's a first-class condition, it's like if and let's assume it's true for the sake of argument. It's a tool of persuasion. That we are entered into union with him, conformed to his physical death. Of course, we believe this is true. We call that a responsive first-class condition in Greek grammar. Then he says, then certainly, here's the inference from that, then certainly we'll also be united with him, conformed to his resurrection. He's using, he's saying, if, if let's assume it's true for the sake of argument, that we have entered in union with him, union with Christ, and we're conformed to his physical death because we died with Christ, we're identified with him in his death, and we believe this is true, then certainly we're going to be united with him, conformed to his resurrection. It's a guarantee of a resurrection body. I can't tell you, (laughs) when you think about, you know, the resurrection body, the resurrection body will be minus the sin nature, okay? 
The, the present bodies that we have are contaminated by sin. Back to the dust of the ground you shall go. We get old, we deteriorate with age, we lose our hair, we lose our eyesight. Everything, you know, used to be, you know, a great chest when you were younger, and now it's down here, okay? And now you have to do sit-ups and do yoga every day just to keep it down, okay? And everything is, you used to, you used to I mean, oh man, I used to have eyelashes. Oh, not anymore. I'm, I'm losing, I'm, I'm growing hair in places I don't want it to grow, and I have to buy things to get rid of the hair there. It stinks, it stinks getting old, as my father would say. It sucks getting old. It's a road, it's a, it's a train wreck. It really is. And I feel bad. I watch my father who, I remember him, and you know, he, he's got arthritis all up and down his, his spine. And now he, he might have, I think he might have neuropathy and everything. And his buddy has that. And these guys, you play golf with them and they can, be, you know, he can walk still good, but you know, his friend Jack, he could barely walk. You know, and, he, and it's like, and my dad used to be able to hit the ball 300 yards. He used to have eight eagles in his life. Now he can't even hit the ball 200. With 200 yards, it's like a great effort, you know, and his shoulder needs to be done. And I can't, it's awful. I said, boy, I'm going to try to take care as best I can with this body as I can. But even that, you know, things happen, right? And so God is, wants us to look forward to this resurrection body. He says that to be eagerly anticipating that, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, because that's when we'll be free of this sin nature, which is not only causing us physical problems, okay, but also it, 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 it seeks to, uh, it has desires to please itself. That's why we were tempted, we're tempted to sin from one perspective, from the desires these, the, your physical body has. It wants food, it wants sex, it wants whatever it wants, it wants it, it doesn't want to wait. That's what we're dealing with. Paul personifies that, that sin nature in scripture. And so now we have three great enemies. We have the devil and his cosmic system outside of us, but this indwelling sin nature, that is where the real battle is. That's a huge battle there. And we, God, Paul, God wants us to know, I can get, you got the victory. I can, I'm, I'm helping you. Just hang in there. Keep persevering and prayerfully meditate upon what you're being taught here in Romans chapter 6. So then it says in Romans 6, 6, we have, we, we have seen that the believer's Olson nature has been crucified at the cross in order that it might be deprived of its power so that the believer might not be its slave. Uh, Romans 6, 6 on the board. <clears throat> For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. My translation of that verse goes as follows. It says this we are very familiar with, through instruction. Notice again, instruction in the word of God. Namely, that our old man was crucified with him. When did that happen? At your justification through the baptism of the Spirit. Why did he do this? God do this for us? In order that the sinful body would be deprived of its power with the result that we're no longer in a perpetual state of being slaves to the sin nature. One of the greatest things that ever happened to us in life, in this life, is when you believe in Jesus, you no longer have to be a perpetual slave to the sin nature and the devil and his cosmic system. You now have an opportunity to experience freedom from those things that enslaved you. Why do people have, you know, people talk, psychiatrists can't solve the problem. The reason why people are so unhappy, we won't talk about Christians yet, the reason why the world's very unhappy, there's a devil and he deceives the world and the human beings were not designed to live according to lies. 
They're not designed to live according to life. They were created to live on truth. God created their souls to live on truth, not the lies of de the devil's world. That's why people are unhappy. People have psychological, whatever you want, to, mental problems like never before in this country. Because what has our country done? Gone further and further away from the truth. No wonder we're a miserable people. And we're the wealthiest people on the face of the earth, greater than the Antoinine Caesars. How in the world do Christians, uh, the Americans, have a high rate of suicide? when we have the highest standard of living. I'll tell you why we ran away from the truth of God's word. And that's why people are unhappy. Even Christians believe, don't believe, this, many Christians don't believe this. No, the reason why they're unhappy is this. They're living according to a lie. They're enslaved to the devil and his and the sin nature. It makes you, that's why, we're, that's why we get depressed at times, many times. Because we, we, we're battling this thing and it brings us down. When you get a, a resurrection body, the joy you will have, and I have, will have, will be absolutely incredible. I mean, I, th I thought of the first time I was ever on stage, talk about a general rush. I mean, the first time I was on stage in high school, I did a, a variety show, and I was playing the Beatles song yesterday. I scared to death, too. But I was up on the stage, sitting down, and I'll tell you what, I started singing yesterday, and I remember, what's, I don't know, some girls go, yeah! It's like, and I'm like, oh, I don't feel like Philip Paul McCartney. And so, and then I was just going, the adrenaline rush. When I, with that, and when I first went out with my band, the first time in front of a big crowd, it was like a thousand people in there. I was like, whoa. It, I, I can't even, the adrenaline rush was unbelievable. I'm just thinking when the rapture comes, and the resurrection body, I can't wait for that rush. I mean, that's going to be incredible. It's just going to be incredible. You're just going to be like, whoa. I mean, I, mean, I, don't, I think we'll probably go, this is so ecstatic. It would be so incredible. Okay? So, keep, from, keep thinking about that because it's coming. So, we're slaves. The world is depressed. Yeah, because they were slaves to sin and Satan. Sin and, uh, sin and Satan, this cosmic system. We don't have, we're not in a perpetual state of being slaves to those things, our three great enemies, because we were delivered through Christ in our identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit at our justification. Now in Romans 6, 7, Paul teaches the that the believer is free from the tyranny of the old and dwelling Adamic sin nature because they've died with Christ as a result of having been identified with Christ in his death. It says in Romans 6, 6 and 6, 7 again, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died and we have with Christ has been freed from sin. The slaves have been freed. That's the greatest slavery the world needs to be delivered from. This. Isn't it ironic? You could, have been a, you could be a slave somewhere. And there's slaves in the world today. And it's, it's, you read Revelation, slavery is going, to be, is going to be prevalent. You could be a slave in union with Christ, appropriating by faith your union identification with Christ, and you're more free than the person who's your slave owner who's a slave to sin and Satan's cosmic system. Isn't that ironic? Do you know that you notice that God is very ironic? God loves irony. Do you notice that? I always know when God's hand is on certain things how irony takes place in, in, in life. Rex, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's so amazing. I go, wow, that's God telling you I'm here. When certain things happen, isn't that ironic? Yeah. God's saying, hello, I'm here. See, I'm working like, because you know, Bill, that I like irony. It's how I, it's, I'm very poetic. 
<laughs> God is saying. So it says in Romans 6, 7, my translation on the board, it says, for you see, the one who has died is freed from the power of the sin nature. Now Paul instructs the Roman believers in Romans 6, 8, that since they've died with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit, they will as a certainty in the future at the resurrection, the rapture of the church, live with Christ in the sense that they will receive a resurrection body like Christ. Again, we have a guarantee of a resurrection body. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. My translation on the board goes as follows. It's another first-class condition. Now, as previously stated, because he said this before, if and let's assume it's true for the sake of argument that we have died with him. Of course, we've already established that this is true. Here's the apotheosis, the inference from the apotheosis. Then we do have this absolute confidence that we as a certainty will in the future also live with him. Then in Romans 6, 9, Paul teaches that physical death no longer has dominion over Jesus Christ because he's been raised from the dead. Romans 6, 9 on the board in the NIV. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. My translation of that same verse goes as follows, because we know for certain, namely that because Christ was raised from the dead ones, he can never die again. Death can never have dominion over him. Paul, in verse 10, he instructs the believers in Rome that the Lord Jesus Christ died physically for the destruction of the sin nature. You know this body, this sin nature, this body that's contaminated by the sin nature is going to be permanently eradicated from the face of the earth, okay? Because the curse is going to be lifted. You know, God always works from the inside out. He works in our hearts, soul. Then he goes, going to take our bodies, and then he's going to do the earth because he's going to lift the curse at the second advent of Christ, right? So in Romans 6.10, Paul again instructs the believers in Rome that Jesus died physically for the destruction of the sin nature, but now he lives to God. Romans 6.10, the death he, our Lord died, he died to sin once for all, unlimited atonement. He didn't just die for the elect, he died for both the elect and non-elect. That's what all means. But the life he lives, he lives to God. See what he's saying? That's very important. The life he lives, he lives to God. He lived a life set apart to serve God exclusively. Did he not? He did it perfectly. He's the, he's the, he's the, uh, the prototype. Spiritual life, right? Remember that, that prototype? He's the one who set the example of being set apart to serve God exclusively. He lives and he lives to God to serve and please God. That's the way we need to live. He's setting, he's the, he's setting up the pattern that we must follow. All right? So it says in Romans 6.10, on the board in my translation it goes as this as follows for you see the physical death that he died he died for the destruction of the sin nature once and for all but the life that he now lives he lives forever for the benefit of God the Father the crucifixion death burial, resurrection and session of Jesus Christ is the omnipotence of God God in his weakness the son of God became weak he became a human being, a little while lower than the angels, as it says in Hebrews, right? And in weakness, he did this. As Paul says to the Corinthians, the weakness of God is stronger in the strength of men, the wisdom of men. God's wisdom was manifested in his weakness. When we're weak, we're strong. When we're weak, 
we're strong. Some of our greatest moments spiritually will be when we're weak and we're strong. Okay? Why? Because now we're depending upon God's power. When we're weak, we see our need. One of the great things, one of the things that marks humility is that you know that you need God. That's why you pray. And you are dependent upon his word. And you're in his word every day. You're dependent upon him. You're telling God, I need you. That's humility. An arrogant person says, I don't have any need for you, God. I don't need to study my Bible today. And I don't need to pray today. I could never imagine going there. I've been doing it so long. I could never imagine going out into the world or doing anything before praying, without praying. Or going to bed or during the day, talking to God during the day. That's, 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 that's the air I breathe. And I couldn't ever, you know, I go on vacations. There's no vacation for me from the Word of God, and there shouldn't be for you. I, I, I have to take, read some part of the scriptures during the, on my vacation. When I go and stay with my family or something, I still do stuff in the, in the morning or with my friends. I was like, yeah, I never take a break because do you take a break from eating? Of course not. Man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So why is the word of God now not taking settle, second fiddle and we, we starve ourselves? There's the other reason why we're having problems in, our, in the church in America. We're starving people. Pastors aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. Instead, they're doing the dog and pony show, doing what people want to hear, not what they need to hear, not confronting and rebuking what they're supposed to. All of this is encouragement, which is what you're supposed to do, encouragement, but also you got to say, hey, we're on, we need to do it better here. We can't, you know, just like a parent with a child or a football coach, the best coaches, I mean, Tom Brady, you know, he, he said the best coaches he had were like Bill Belichick, pointing out what he needs to get better at. You're not arrived. We have to, we, there's always, when even Paul would tell you, I've not arrived until he got the resurrection body or he, he was absent from the body face to face with the Lord with his death. He strived for perfection, knowing he couldn't get that perfection in this life, but will at the rapture or his death, whichever comes first, right? For him it was death. So, so we, should, we should follow the example as well. So in Romans chapter six, verse 11, Paul commands the Roman believers to regard themselves, logizomai, consider yourselves dead with respect to the sin nature, but alive with respect to God and union with Christ Jesus. This is a great part of the chapter. This is the application in this, of the application of the doctrine. The doctrine is you've died with Christ, raised and seated with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit and your justification. Here's the application. Here's where you've got to appropriate by faith these things. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul, in Romans 6, 11, in my translation, in the same way also. And remember, he's following on the heels of what Jesus is doing. He lives to please God, always. In the same way, also. On the one hand, all of you without exception, make it your habit, it's a lifestyle, to regard yourselves, word of thinking, logizomai, as dead ones with respect to the sin nature. While on the other hand, those who are alive with respect to God the Father in union with Christ, who is Jesus. Why should we do that? Because we've died with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We've got to adopt the view that God has of us and what he's done for us. In other words, we are to live in a manner that's consistent with who God made us to be. You know, does, does a... Uh, does a when a per person is very wealthy, do they live? It's kind of funny when they, you know, they, you see people like that at eccentric, 
And, you, and by the way, and by the way, you'll see some of these people out in the street because I know about some of these people. They're, they're playing the system, and they're very. I was. I told you the story, but they could be very. They could be very wealthy, yet they're living like paupers. Okay. I remember a guy, a friend of mine, good friend of mine, Christian. He worked at the Pine Street Inn in Boston. Okay. This is where all the homeless and the AIDS people came and everything. He, it was all okay. He said Billy, and he was the most liberal. He, I mean, he made, he made he could have made Biden blush back then, okay, back when he was that young. And he basically, he was like saying, Billy, after about five, four or five years, of it, he says, you know what? Most of these people, you'd be amazed. They just play in the system. A lot of these people come from wealthy families. They kind of just dropped off the grid. I can't, I can't take it. I can't deal with life. And they run away. Or they have drug problems and alcohol problems and they're whacked out. But they just, you know, he says, they're not starving or anything. Okay? So... They, and I bring up the, that because there are people who are very wealthy and they live like paupers. You know? How, it's in the same way. Many Christians, many of us Christians, live not like children of the king, children of God, but like children of the devil. You should have a spiritual self-esteem, meaning you know who you are. You're a child of God. Does a child of God sin is repulsive to him or her. It should be. So we need to go and live in a manner that's consistent with who God made us to be. And that's where you're going to get joy. You know, isn't it interesting when you get, when you sin, and you live in, you, you have a, bit, a little bad run of sinning, okay, and you know, you're blah, 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 and then you feel how lousy you feel, but when you get back track, you go, you know, and, I, you, and remember that. Don't stay, stay close to God. Stay close to God. Don't stay, don't run away from God, ever. And listen to me, when you're upset with God, don't be afraid to go, God, I'm upset with you. You can pour out your heart to God. It's all right to do that. I've done it many times, and even recently, because <laughs> he's my God. I'm going to pour out my heart when I'm having trouble with certain things. And he, he'll listen to you. Of course, he's going to listen to you. He wants you to do that. You are his child. He'll do anything and has done everything he can to make your life beautiful. It's all a question now, with a, are we going to live that beautiful, extraordinary life that is a, or is a wonder to the world and could lead people to the Savior? Or are we going to live the way the devil's children live? Unhappy, miserable, you know, doing drugs. You know, I was with this, with this girl down the other street with her husband. They're moving to North Carolina, and they're going to live on the, the water there, whatever. And she was showing me. And she always was kind of, like, moody. But, you know, lately she's been saying, hi, neighbor. I was like, well, she's moving, right? She probably can't wait to get rid, get, get out of the neighborhood where she sees the guy down the other street singing, you know, Bon Jovi at the top of his lungs. But she, she was, like, saying, you know, we're talking. She goes, and you could tell she's, you know, she's into crystals and all that stuff, the new age stuff. And, I go, and, and you could tell just looking at her in her face and her eyes, lost doesn't know what she's doing. She's seeking for happiness somewhere. Clutching, you know, wherever I can get it. Where can I find it? I look around and there's people like that all over the place. How sad. But we have the answer. We have the answer at our disposal. And you know, we should model it. We should model this extraordinary, beautiful life that God has given us. Because people are attracted to that. They will be attracted to it. There's something different about you. And what is that? Well, then you got it. Now, in Romans 6.12, Paul prohibits the believers in Rome from letting the sin nature reign as kings in their bodies with the result that they obey its lust. In Romans 6.12, on the board, it says the following. 
in my translation. Therefore, do not make it a habit to let the sin nature reign as king in your mortal body with the result that you habitually obey its lust. Now, in Romans chapter 6, verse 13, Paul is prohibiting the, prohibiting the Roman believers from placing the members of their body at the disposal of the sin nature as instruments of unrighteousness and commands them instead to place the members of their body at the disposal of the Father as instruments of righteousness. Romans 6.13, I'm not going to read my translation, we're running out of time here. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Why? For the sin nature shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. That's the thing. When you're living the spiritual life, you're experiencing the grace of God. Okay? Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves prior to your justification, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, the gospel. You've been set free through justification by faith in Jesus and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness when you were an unbeliever, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. In other words, leading to sanctification. Leading to experiencing being set apart to serve God exclusively. So if you do what he says, and he taught us how to do it, consider yourself dead to sin nature and alive to God. Why? Because you've died with Christ and you're raised with Christ. Now you're going to experience being set apart to serve God exclusively. The spiritual life, the beautiful, extraordinary life that God has given to each one of us, the same life that our Lord and Savior did experienced and lived perfectly in, in, in his, in, as, a, as a human being, and he's still, he's still in that state forever. He's the God-man, the hypostatic union. So when you were slaves, he said in verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin, huh? You died with Christ at, through the baptism of the Spirit, your justification, and it becomes slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. In other words, leading to experiencing your sanctification. In other words, experiencing being set apart to serve God exclusively, the plan of God. And the result is eternal life. Eternal life, Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is, this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father. There's uproom discourse. No, remember we did that? Gnosko, an experiential knowledge. What's an experiential knowledge? It means, eternal life means you're personally encountering the Trinity. And it's changing your character and giving you practical wisdom. More of the character of Christ. And you do this through the process of fellowship. How do you have fellowship with God? Believe his word. Do what his word says. Well, hear his word. Read his word. Have faith in his word. Do his word. In other words, perception, metabolization, application. Perception, you're hearing the word of God. Perception, 
<laughs> perception, metabolization. Metabolization is having faith in God's word, okay? And application would be obedience, okay? That's the spiritual life. It's really simple. Why is it difficult? Because it's, it's a war of faith. That's what Paul said at the end of his life in 2 Timothy. It's about faith. The world's telling you this, and it's tempting you here, and this flesh is telling you, and the sin nature is leading you here, tempting you there. It's a battle. God knows it. That's why he's going give to give you and I rewards if we're faithful in this life. Because he knows it's a war. He knows the struggles you go through. He could empathize. Wasn't Jesus a human being? Isn't he a human being? Did he go? Did he, wasn't he tempted in all things yet without sin? So he is our great high, sympathetic high priest. So you got, he's on your side. He's on my side. Okay? When you fail, confess it. Get back on the horse and keep going. You know? If you fail, get back in a ball game. He's going to give you the victory. Keep persevering, and you'll get practice what you're doing, okay? Practice the Christian life. Practice the mechanics of the spiritual life, which Paul just mapped out for us. Keep practicing, and as time goes on, see, holiness is, experiencing sanctification is a long process, okay? This is some of the old timers that have been walking with God forever, for a long time, right? They'll tell you, okay? It's a long process to become like Christ, and the end is not far away. It could be tonight, or death of the rapture, whichever it is. But whatever happens, we know that he loves us and he'll do anything for us, has done everything for us, and now he wants us to respond in faith and love, obedience to his commands, so that we can grow to spiritual maturity and he can bless us even more than in putting, giving us rewards on top of the resurrection body. And also, seeing this extraordinary life manifested in our own lives could very well cause, and will, in many instances, cause the non-Christian to see their need for Jesus. I want what that person has. They have a joy, and they have a, 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 they have a, there's victory in their life. I want to be, I, I can't put it into words. What does that person have? It's Jesus. That's what they have. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray this lesson would be a great blessing to your people as they battle with sin in the devil's world. And we pray, Father, it would help them, uh, the Spirit would help them understand and apply what they've been taught here this evening. I thank you for each and every person here. And I pray again that uh, as a result that your children will be able to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. If you don't mind, I'll sing us a song. And if you need to leave, you can go. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Now watch I turn around, the whole place is cleared up. Sometimes these slides, you see me flipping around the slides, and it's like, I hit the thing, and it'll jump on me, so if I smile and laugh and try to, you know, you'll, that's what's going on. I have a hard time walking and chewing gum at the same time. I don't know how I'm doing this. Wait a minute. What is this dude doing? All right.
Oh, good. Good, I'm a, a computer genius, too. Thank you.